Our first scripture reading today is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Uh, as we preach through the Gospel of Mark, we are reading in the opposite testament, and so some readings from Ecclesiastes over the next little while. I'm going to invite Megan forward. There you are, Megan. Megan forward. She's going to be reading this passage for us, which is laid out here in your bulletin. Megan. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What is crooked cannot be made straight. Uh, when we look around at the world around us, this is often our conclusion. Like, how is anything ever going to be made right? Uh, the more we seem to know, the more it upsets us, the more it makes us, uh, it, uh, it increases our sorrow, as the writer says. Even knowing madness, knowing the other side, that doesn't help either, knowing folly. And we're left in need of a savior. We're, we're left in need of, of rescue from somewhere else because we know just left to ourselves, we are, we are in deep trouble. We are continuing uh, our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we picked it up last week from where we had left off uh, a number of months ago. And, and of course, Mark is telling us the story of Jesus. He's telling us what Jesus did, what he said, what he taught, where he traveled, miracles, all these kinds of things. And we're kind of in the middle of a journey Jesus is on, and yet he's kind of pausing because there's things happening to him, questions that are being asked in the midst of it. You'll see it as we get into it. Before uh, we, I come and preach, uh, Cody's going to come and read it for you. It's on, on, the, on the back of your bulletin in here from Mark 10. Cody. And they were bringing children to him that they may touch him, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on him on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? 
it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is not one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age will come eternal life. But many who, who are first will be last and the last first. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Have you ever noticed that for most major world religions, the geographic place they begin remains their center to this day? For instance, Islam starts at at Mecca, and for the most part, the Middle East remains uh, the center of the Islamic faith. Judaism started in Israel, in Jerusalem. Israel remains the center of the, Jew, uh, the Jewish faith. Uh, Buddhism, Hinduism in the Far East, India, and so, often, or so on, and those places remain the center of their faith. But the great exception to this is, is Christianity. Because Christianity begins as a Middle Eastern-based religion centered largely on Jerusalem. It quickly migrated to the cities and towns of Greece, Italy, Turkey, North Africa. And it remained there for a few centuries. But you know, as Rome fell and declined, some parts of Christianity went east, but a lot of Christianity went into middle and northern Europe. That became the center of, of the Christian faith for a long time, over the centuries, eventually to North America. But in the last 150 years or so, Christianity has receded in Europe. It has sort of kept pace in some ways in North America. But the center is shifting elsewhere. The Christian population has exploded in places like Asia, Africa, South America, and now more than half the world's Christians live in the Southern Hemisphere, and that will continue to grow if demographic trends hold. The the center of Christianity continues to shift. It continues to migrate. Now, you may be familiar with these details, but have you wondered why that is? Why do most major world religions stay centered on a geographic place, but the center of Christianity moves? It migrates. Well, Andrew Walls, who's sort of a a famous historian guy, he answers the question in this way. He says, there is a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity, and he calls it the vulnerability of the cross. And he goes on to say, the heart of Christianity is, is about the cross, which is about things like sacrifice and giving up power and pouring out resources and serving And sayings like, the first will be last and the last will be first. And when Christianity spends too long in a place of power and wealth, that message can get corrupted and lost. The radical message of grace can get misplaced and Christianity becomes this religion of the respectable and secure. And when that happens, Christianity inevitably begins to decline there and the center of Christianity moves somewhere different. Now, what does that that all have to do with today's text? Well, in front of us are two very different groups. On one hand, a group of children. And on the other hand, a wealthy, moral young man. And to the disciples' great astonishment, the man that they thought was on his way into the kingdom, if anyone was going to make it, it'd be this guy. He's actually lost. And the group that they have no time for is on their way in. See, at this, the heart of this text is a retelling of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. And in a place like the West, like Canada, wealthy nation, it's a helpful reset of the expectations we might have for who gets in and who doesn't. 
So let's take it in three sections. We'll talk about the children first, we'll talk about the rich man second, and then this saying, the first will be last. And if you recall in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. In the next chapter, he makes his triumphal entry. And as he travels, he is teaching. But also at the same time, what's happening is people are bringing, this is in verse 13, people are bringing children to him so that he might touch them. That's lay his hands on them and, 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 and offer a blessing. Jesus is a well-regarded rabbi by this point, getting famous. They want him to bless their children. But the disciples, right there, so in the first verse, they rebuke them. Now Why? We're not actually told, but from other similar passages, we can kind of guess, we can assume it's because they think it's a waste of Jesus' time to deal with these children. He's too busy to, you know, lay his hands on them, give, give them a friendly pat on the head or whatever, a quick word of blessing, a prayer, whatever they want. And the disciples are like, you know, bouncers at a club, you know, got their arms crossed, like, you know, keep, keep these kids away. Uh, there's certain kinds of people we don't want to get too close to Jesus. Jesus doesn't like it. The text says he's indignant. When's the last time you've been indignant about something? He's upset. He's frustrated. And he tells the disciples, no, get out of the way. Unbouncer yourself. Let the children come. Don't hinder them, because to such belongs the kingdom of God. That's an interesting statement. And I think we have to unpack that little word, such. I don't think Jesus is saying that all children are automatically part of the kingdom of God. But rather, there's something about the nature of a child that illustrates how people need to come to God. And this is reiterated in verse 15, where Jesus teaches the disciples and the crowd, they ought to be receiving, or they have to receive the kingdom of God like a child. So our question is, what is it about a child that's suited to receiving the kingdom of God? Now, some have argued it's the innocence of children. Now, if you're a parent, you understand there is an innocent part to children, of course. There's also other parts. There's mischievous parts, even malicious parts. Children, children aren't blameless. They are in the process of being formed. Their frontal lobe is developing, all that kind of stuff. But they're not exactly innocent. Or perhaps it's the simplicity of children. They aren't, they aren't complicated. Their, their, their wants and needs and desires are, are, are more basic. I, I'm not sure that adequately explains it either. Simplicity is not taught uh, as a virtue for entering the kingdom of God anywhere else in the scriptures. So what is it? What is it about children? I think it's a few things. First is that they were brought. When you think about a child, there's a fundamental limit to what they can do. None of the children drove themselves here this morning. You know, they were, they, they were brought to church. Maybe a few of you walked if you lived close by or biked or whatever. But for many years of life, children cannot survive on their own. They need help. They need assistance. And as they get a bit older, you know, training and encouragement and all that kind of stuff before they can set off on their own. You gotta feed children, you gotta house them, you gotta put them to bed. You have to stop them from running into the street and you know, hurting themselves in all sorts of ways. The children had to be brought to Jesus because they could not or perhaps would not come on their own. Now this is profound, but I think if a person believes they can access the kingdom of God all on their own, they're, they're quite mistaken. We receive the kingdom of God, we don't seize it. We don't attain it, we are, we are brought into the kingdom. And in a similar way, children are quite weak and small. You know, they're still growing, not yet full size. They don't have enough strength to survive in the world. Children cannot achieve the kingdom of God on their own strength, but only access it by the blessing of Jesus. See, what we're learning here is the kingdom of God, it's not handed to the powerful. It's not for those who have great stature in the world or in society. It is gratefully received by those who know that they cannot hold it all by themselves. 
This action of Jesus welcoming and blessing children would have been shocking to disciples because children did not have any standing in their society. They were valuable because they carried on the family name and history, but they have, you know, no assets, no, no civil or political rights, no real protection, you know, in contrast to our world where kids do some have, you know, some rights and some protections. And spiritually speaking, until they came of age in Jewish culture, their participation in spiritual life was limited. They got to go to the, the festivals and celebrations, but as we can see from the disciples, they just weren't valued. So if we kind of summarize, the very kind of person the disciples think is a nuisance, without value, that's exactly the kind of person Jesus says is fit for the kingdom of God. The weakness, the smallness, the inability, that's actually what makes them ready for the gospel message. Now I want to try to do a bit of translation work to kind of recover some of the shock of Jesus' teaching, because I think we shrug. Culturally speaking, think about it this way, culturally speaking, what kind of person feels distinctly unwelcome in modern Canada? Okay, and I'm not talking about church culture, just broader culture. Well, perhaps a person who's uh, mean or narrow-minded or doesn't like beavers or something like that. These kinds of people are, don't feel very welcome in Canada. Imagine if Jesus came along to Canadians and said, Oh, you know who fits in the kingdom of God? It's exactly people like that. Or we can take it a step further. Let's talk about church culture. Who, who feels generally unwelcome in the church? Maybe someone that feels like, oh, they have, a, they have a messy life, or a rough backstory, or they don't know the songs, or they say the wrong thing all the time. What if Jesus came to us and said, that kind of person that you're interested in keeping out, that's the exact kind of person who fits in the kingdom of God. And moreover, instead of keeping them away, you actually need to become more like them. See, I'm not saying you need to become more narrow-minded or, you know, hate beavers, mess up your life. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is... The way children are is, uh, is not what we naturally think makes a person fit for the kingdom of God. Weakness, smallness, ability to receive, uh, this is what makes children sort of a symbol or an illustration of the kind of person who inherits the kingdom of God. And let me just say one more thing about this, then, then we'll move on. We, we often hear children in our services, right? They cry, they make noise, they fuss. Maybe you find that sometimes it bothers you. Maybe you find it distracting. And look, to be fair, sometimes it is. <laughs> sometimes it does a little bit. But listen, there's a reason we value the presence of children in our church. And we could play the trump card, like Jesus loves children, so you should too. But more than that, more than that, we ought to look at a crying baby, or a fussing toddler, or a loud-talking preschooler, and see, oh, they don't need to become more like us adults. In some ways, we have to figure out a way to become more like them. Now, hopefully not in their behavior. I don't want you all to start fussing and crying and everything. Uh, but, but something about their smallness and their weakness and their neediness and their, their, the reason they keep kicking over their water bottle, there, there, there's something about that that reminds us of our own place in the kingdom of God and how people actually get into the kingdom of God. Okay, let's talk about this rich man. This story is popularly known as the rich young ruler. But if you were listening carefully when Cody was reading... You might have noticed, Mark does not tell us he's young, and Mark does not tell us he's a ruler. All we know is it's a rich man. Verse 22, he has great possessions. It's actually the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew that tell us he's a ruler and he's young and stuff like that, and a very interesting uh, sort of fun Bible fact for you there. But as Jesus is setting out on his walking journey, this man runs up to Jesus, which means he's eager. Men don't normally run in this culture, and he kneels before him, very humble at least the appearance of humility. 
And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now regarding this question, Jews would have known the answer to it. It's not an unusual question. It wasn't like, wow, he's asking something that's never been asked before. Oh no, they thought about this all the time. And, and the answer would have been from any other rabbi in any other town in all of Israel, the, the answer would have been obey the commands. You know the commandments, obey them. So why ask the question? Well, because it's clear the man felt like he's missing something. The commands weren't enough. They didn't, they didn't sort of maybe feel like enough. Or perhaps there was something deeper than the service that he's wondering about. Now, Jesus' first response is to say, why are you calling me good? If only God is good, then what do you think about me? Is it implying something about me, Jesus? Jesus doesn't reject the title. He just kind of directs the question back to the man. But I think in this, this short statement, before they can begin talking about the commands, Jesus is dropping us just a little breadcrumb, a little hint that the man doesn't actually understand what good is. He's using it, but he doesn't, doesn't know what it means. <laughs> He's using it on Jesus somewhat unthinkingly and probably doesn't see himself rightly either. Jesus assumes he knows the commandments. He's like, here's six of them. How, how are you doing? And if you notice, all six refer to neighbor but none to God directly. And the man insists he's kept all of them. And we roll our eyes. Yeah, right, buddy. But listen, if you take the command somewhat simplistically, it is possible that he has not committed murder or adultery. He's never stolen anything, never lied, and has honored his parents. If you take those commands on a very sort of surface level, maybe he hadn't heard the Sermon on the Mount yet, whatever. He's um, like, oh, I guess you technically, maybe you could have. But Jesus, already knowing what was in this man's heart, verse 29, or verse 21, pardon me, tells us Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I want to pause on this for a moment, because I think for most of us, this isn't how we're feeling about this rich man. To me, comes across as kind of arrogant, a little full of himself. What do you mean you've done all the commands? Come on, get real. He puts himself forward. Maybe we think he should be more humble. And we look at him and we rub our hands and be like, Jesus is going to take this guy down. He doesn't, he doesn't know himself. He doesn't understand himself. Jesus is going to get him. Jesus knows more about him than we ever will. He sees more deeply into this man's heart. He's about to put his finger on something in this man's heart. But he loves him. He just loves him. And I'm telling to you, this is very compelling to me personally, that first, Jesus is in fact God, because I don't think the rest of us would act like this. But I think it really boggles your mind to think that Jesus can be like this. And listen, particularly if you're a person who wrestles with shame, and if you at points think terrible thoughts about yourself, and if you ever felt like you've hated yourself or you're disgusted with yourself, Jesus comes to a man and he, and he looks all of, all of the darkness, all of the sin, direct in the face. And he pronounces his love for them. For those who sin and suffer. He, he loves him. He just does. And perhaps if you hear nothing else I say today, you can just rest in the love of a Savior who knows everything you've ever done. All the secrets that you've never told anyone. And he loves you all the same. And this man gets the exact same invitation that the 12 disciples got. You can come and follow me. You can be a disciple. It's a profound thing. Now, we sometimes think that love is passive. That if you love someone truly, you won't ask them to change. But that's not really what love is. In his love, because he loves the man, Jesus puts his finger on the one thing the man lacks. 
True love doesn't leave people where they are, but takes action. He basically says to him, and this is a line I'm borrowing from Tim Keller. He basically says to the man, imagine your life without money. Imagine your life without money. What if it was all gone? What if all the servants and real estate and inheritances and pleasant life, however this man lives, what if it was all gone, but you got to be with Jesus? That's the invitation. Sell everything, give everything to the poor, and then come follow me. Jesus wants to know, can you live like that? And the man walks away sorrowful. And it can also be translated grieved. It's actually the same word used when Jesus gets to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed. And Jesus grieves in the garden, weeping tears of blood. Why? Because he knew everything was about to be taken from him. What was going to happen? Jesus was going to give his very self on the cross, and that grieved him, of course. And so when Jesus asks the rich man, sell everything, give it all to the poor, and come follow me, the man grieved too. Why? Because money was the center of his life. It was his very self. He couldn't imagine a self dislocated from his assets. There was just, there was just no self left. And he walks away sorrowful. He's like, I can't do it. You should know the rich man isn't unique. He's a kind of stand-in for all of us. It shouldn't be surprising to us at the bottom of this man's life, there was something there. There was something that was weighty and important, most important to him, and that is true of all of us. We are worshiping beings. If you, you can be the most secular, atheistic person, you have something at the bottom of your life that's most important. There is something in your life you will trade everything else for. And for some of us, it's this, what this man has, is wealth. Assets, retirement funds, a certain kind of lifestyle, whatever it is. And when Jesus comes along and says, you can have your lifestyle or you can have me, they say, I'll take the first option. But you know, not all of us are wired like that. Some of you don't care much about money. You can be happy with a little, you can be happy with a lot. Like, that eh, doesn't bother me. Jesus says, sell everything. I was kind of thinking of doing that anyways. Um, you know, but let's say... You have to choose between the love and acceptance of your family and the love of Jesus. Oh, that's, a, that's a lot harder. Or let's say you have to choose between your reputation. If people at work and in your life respect you and Jesus. And there's this sort of no end to these questions. We could go on and on for the rest of the day. It all depends on your personality. There will be something that, that vies for the top spot in your life. And when Jesus comes to you and puts the question, imagine a life without fill in the blank. What do you choose? Is too much of yourself, your identity somewhere else. We are all the rich man, all being forced to choose. What is it for you? And that's where we talk about the first, or the part three, the first will be last. There's a lingering question. Because on one hand, Jesus freely welcomed the children and all the childlike people into the kingdom of God. Come on in. On the other hand, Jesus gives this rich man a difficult challenge. The rich man ultimately says no. But then Jesus offers a little teaching. He says, oh, it's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And we've got to talk about that. Some modern people, when they read this story, they automatically assume if this man has great wealth, well, we already know he's not a moral person, right? He's taken advantage of people along the way to accrue all, this, all these possessions. If you kind of land in that camp, you know, politically, socially, you must be thinking, ah, Jesus knows this man is unjust. He's setting him straight. See, you can't be rich and inherit the kingdom of God. And if you think like this, well, then this teaching doesn't surprise you. But look closely, the disciples are amazed 
by this saying. They don't agree with it. They're not sort of like these political left folks who are, who are, who are sort of mad about it. They are surprised by it. Why? Because that was not their view of wealth at all. Jews of this time normally associated material blessing with divine blessing. If you were wealthy, that meant God had blessed you. God had given you that wealth. The disciples' operating belief is that rich people are in the front of the line to get into the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 wealth makes it difficult to enter the kingdom, it's an inversion of everything they've thought and believed. But I think if you look carefully, this passage shows Jesus does not have a problem with wealth per se. What he's talking about is what wealth does to a person. When talking to and about the rich man, Jesus doesn't try to argue that wealth is inherently an exploitation of the poor, uh, that accumulation of assets is, is automatically immoral. He doesn't say any of those things. He says something deeper and more profound. And when the disciples are like, wow, this is amazing. We can't believe this. He says, oh no, there's actually more. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And at this point, they're not just amazed. It says they are exceedingly astonished. They are all the more amazed. Now, some commentators have tried to explain this away. A popular explanation says, well, there was this gate in Jerusalem that camels couldn't enter easily, and they had to crouch down or remove their bags and maybe even kind of get pushed through the hole to get through. Or others have said, well, in Aramaic, the word for camel is actually similar to the word for thread. Maybe Jesus is saying it's as hard to enter the kingdom of heaven as it is to, you know, put a thread through the eye of a needle. I'm not sure either of those explanations hold up under scrutiny. Because if you look again at the disciples, what they understand that what Jesus means by the camel and needle comment is that it's impossible. They're like, well, who can do it? Who can be saved then? If we have to shove a camel through a needle's eye, which is we know is impossible, if the rich and the blessed and those loved by God, if they can't get into the kingdom of God, then who can? The disciples recognize through this physical example the impossibleness of entering the kingdom on their own. Now, what does this all have to do with money and wealth? Let me connect a few of the dots. To enter the kingdom of God, you have to recognize something fundamental about yourself. And money, especially excess money, blinds us to that truth in, in a particular way. To enter the kingdom of God, how do you have to come? We've said it like a child, spiritually speaking, to understand I'm weak, I'm poor, I don't have enough status, I need to receive the kingdom of God humbly. The more wealth you get, the harder it will be to accept that reality. Because one of the things wealth does, if we're being honest, is that it sort of bends life to, to your wishes, to your will. Uh, with increasing amounts of wealth, you can adjust life to your preferences. Oh, the weather is bad here. I will just go to somewhere with better weather. Uh, if you are wealthy, statistics will show you're, you're going to live longer. You're going to have a higher quality of life. You go to jail for less time, um, less often for less time. W wealth in, in many areas lets you bend life in your direction. However, that doesn't work in the spiritual realm. And when you are used to bending life in your direction, making it work for you, and you come to Jesus thinking, I'm going to bend this as well, there's no point of leverage. And Jesus says, you either come on my terms or you don't come at all. See, I don't think it's that wealthy people have a different spiritual problem than everyone else. They just have the same problem, but they are more blinded to it. Everyone has to acknowledge, I have to become like a child to enter the kingdom, and wealthy people in general have a harder time doing that. 
And this section concludes then with this pithy statement, the first will be last and the last will be first. Used by every child when they want to get to the front of the line, you know. Uh, but, But what does this have to do with what we've been speaking about today? What Jesus means by this is that the things we often value in life, the ways we rank ourselves, are often things that hold us back from receiving the kingdom of God. To be a Christian is to repent of your sins, to ask forgiveness from God for all the wrong things you've done. Yes and absolutely. But there's more. To be a Christian is also to repent of how all the good things you've accomplished have become too central to your identity. That all the things you'd put on your job application, your accomplishments, and your education, and your experiences, and your skills, all of these things can become reasons we resist God instead of coming to God as a weak, helpless child. What you'll realize is it isn't just the wealthy who are in danger of missing out on the kingdom, but it's also the beautiful, and the successful, and the prestigious, and the powerful, and the pastors, and everyone else, because all of us, we have gods that we trust in. All of us, we have some kind of personal uh, accomplishment and merit, and we think, well, this is where my true identity lies. And to be a Christian is to end up in the place where the disciples do in verse 26 to conclude, no one can be saved. We have as much chance of making it into heaven on our own merit as a polar bear does trying to fit through a tennis racket. Like, it's just, it's just not going to happen. It can't. It, 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 can't. There's not enough room. This is why Jesus' words in verse 27 make all the sense in the world. Your faith is an impossibility. If you are a Christian, it is a miracle. And by the way, everything that's given up for God's sake, everything left behind on your way into the kingdom will be spiritually repaid. We don't have time to delve too much into Peter's comments, but that's what Jesus is saying. You will inherit spiritual riches. But if you are a Christian today, know this, it's a miracle. A camel has gone through the eye of a needle. It's a spiritual miracle. But I want to answer one final question. How do you become the kind of person who wants to give everything up to follow Jesus? Maybe you say, okay, uh, pastor, I, I intellectually understand what you are saying, how this works, and yet I lack the desire to trust Christ. How do you move forward if that's you, if that's the way you're feeling or thinking this morning? I think here's how. You have to recognize there are actually two rich men in this story. One we've been speaking about. The one who ran and and knelt and asked a question and went away sad. That's the obvious one. But there's another one. And he's the one answering the questions. See, Jesus was rich beyond measure. From all ages, God, he, he was God. He was the maker of heaven and earth. All the cattle on all the hills belonged to him. Colossians says all creation was his. It was, it was for him. It was by him. It was through him that he's, he, he held the cosmos together. And to save his lost sons and daughters, this rich man knew only one thing could be done. He would have to give up his wealth and hide his glory and be stripped of his beauty, give up everything he'd ever known and become a human. And the second rich man in this story is in a kind of poverty we can scarcely imagine. And in essence, what he's saying to the rich young ruler is this. I've given up everything to love you. The whole reason I'm here, I left it all behind so I can love you. Will you give up everything to follow me? 
I'm telling you, this changes the equation for us because Jesus does not sit on some grand throne and, and demand his followers pass by one after another, giving appropriate sacrifices that he will be pleased. No, no, what he's doing is he's saying, he's coming to each of us and saying, look what I've done for you on the cross. Allow me to change your heart so that money can just be money and beauty can just be beauty and acceptance can just be acceptance so you can become a humble child receiving the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ, rich beyond measure, he became poor that all of us, rich, proud, beautiful, whatever, that all of us might become like children and inherit his kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful that the gospel changes not just how we sort of approach this life, but how we understand the very nature of the kingdom itself, that it was, it was brought to us by a God who gave up everything to love us, that we might follow him. I pray that you'd allow these gospel truths to sink deeply into our hearts, that they might transform the way we, that we think and believe and act and, and feel. Please change us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.